and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 148, and September is here. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been a busy week, as always, including one day of holiday in the UK. It is also a week where I have been trying to convince myself that I'm only a day older than yesterday and not a year older, so less said about that the better. I also, for some reason, spent a bit of time this week reading about and listening to clips from some of my broadcasting heroes, such as Harry Carey, Rick Jenneret, and Paul Harvey, all of them legends. Probably throw Joe Bowen in there, too. I grew up listening to some amazing broadcasters in the UK, too, before I moved to North America, and I think that the two things they all have in common were being so natural and relaxed in their delivery, and also making communications seem like they were just having a conversation with a close friend. They all taught me a lot, even though I'm not really in the same league as them. I'm more blooper reel than highlight reel. Actually, now I think about it, the reason why I was listening to their old clips was I found a Buffalo Sabres hat with the old logo on it. And it reminded me of listening to Rick Jenneret on WGR in Buffalo during the winters in Ontario. I can't say I was really a big fan of the team, but his commentary was something that you couldn't miss. I was usually tuning in in the car, returning from a sporting event myself. He's retiring this year after a stellar career. I'm sure wherever you are, there are radio or television presenters that are legendary as well. Seems to be a bit of a lost art. It's still sunny here, which is amazing, but that is all supposed to come crashing down on Sunday when we are due to get two weeks of rain. So business as usual, I guess. I'm still looking into trips to cover events, but finding that the biggest difficulty at the moment is communicating with the event itself. There are two that I was looking at in September, and neither of them is responding to emails or phone calls, so I figure let's move on to October instead. Perhaps the two that aren't responding have heard the podcast. It's not that bad, is it? Speaking of the podcast, I should reveal who our guests are this week. We have two interviews on the podcast, one of them a little bit longer again. We have conversations with Dr. Kortha Hashem, campaign lead at Action on Sugar, and with John Farrand, managing director of the Guild of Fine Food, which organizes the World Cheese Awards. So now it's time to go over some of the news from the past week that you may have missed. And a little warning, it includes another top 20 chart. Arla Foods revealed its first half revenues are up. A Scottish dairy company in the Orkney Islands is investing in refurbishment. And Dairy UK has added its voice to those calling for a Covid recovery visa in the UK to address workforce shortages. It's interesting news, that one, as there are definitely issues with deliveries around the UK at the moment, and it doesn't seem to be improving. CPEX updated its smart conveying technology, Hochdorf announced a restructuring program, and the IDF World Dairy Conference is taking place in Copenhagen in October, and you can register now. Danone is pulling the plug on more than 80 US organic dairy farmers. We had our monthly roundup of new products, And within about 10 minutes, I had two more, which I'll save until the end of this month. And Christian Hansen published the first study on HMO mixes in natural concentrations in infant formula. And now I get to do a chart rundown again, because Rabobank published its annual Global Dairy Top 20 Companies. So I will do it in reverse order again, to build the tension and the anticipation. There's no change at 20 for Muller and also no change at 19 for Schreiber Foods. 
Down two at 18 is India's Gujarat Cooperative Milk Marketing Federation, and dropping three places to 17 is Sodial. Up one at 16 is Canadian Cooperative Agripur, and up three places to 15 is Kraft Heinz. Up one at 14 is Savancia, while Meiji stays at 13. It's a swap of positions at 12 and 11 as DMK drops one and Unilever is up one. And so we're into this year's top 10. Unchanged at 10 is Saputo, and down one at 9 is Mengnu. Up one in the 8th spot is Arla Foods, and there's no change at 7 for Friesland Campina. Also unchanged at 6 is Fonterra, and there's no change at 5 either for Ely. Still at 4 is Danone, and now we're into the top 3. No change at 3 for Dairy Farmers of America, while at number 2, down one, is Nestle. And that means we have a new number one. I'd run downstairs to my drum kit and do a drum roll, but it would take too long. So the new number one this year in the Rabobank Top 20 is Lactali. So you can read that one at a more leisurely pace and check out all of these articles and more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews. The World Cheese Awards event is back and it takes place in Spain in November. But entries are now open, so that was a great opportunity to talk about the upcoming awards with the organisers, the Guild of Fine Food, and its managing director, John Farrand. When it comes to the event itself, how has the planning been this time around? Because obviously it's been two years since the last one now. Yeah, 2019 Bergamo. You'll probably remember that um, a few months later, the hall in which we held the World Cheese Awards was turned into a it's hospital, actually, you know, sort of equivalent of a Nightingale hospital. So that was a bit surreal. But yeah, we were in northern Italy 2019, October 2019. So there was clearly no way we were going to do the event last year. And so we've postponed our trip to Asturias to November this year. How is that proceeding? We proceed as, as it's going ahead. We're getting all our judges in place, the bureaucracy of and the mountain of paperwork that we have to get our head around for cheese moving around the world from every corner of the globe is going ahead. I guess we're at the whim of government's decisions and what the virus does. Um, none of us can predict that. So we, we have to plough on, organise and invite and accept entries as if it's happening. And what about the, obviously, it's taking place in Spain, which has different requirements depending on where in the world you're coming from. How are you organizing the fact that there'll be judges and visitors coming from a widely varied pool of countries? We can't possibly know the rules and regs for every single nation in the world. That wouldn't be feasible. But we've invited our judges and those that are allowed to come will be able to come. There'll be some who won't want to travel uh, or can't travel, and that's fair enough. And then there's be those who need to do the sort of various tests and adhere to certain Spanish guidelines about coming into the country, which we will all know more about in the coming months. What's the situation on the ground in Spain? Because obviously you must be communicating with them quite a lot in terms of the logistics of putting this on. It's a moving feast out there as well. They're sort of in a similar place to us at the moment. What I can tell you is what we're doing is we're planning the event according to Spanish 
guidelines in terms of holding events, which is all we can do. You know, we're spacing out the judging teams a little bit more. We're making sure that we adhere to the sort of space required per person or per judge in our case at the event. And we've sort of done the sums and the table plan on that basis. If we have to operate with slightly fewer judges, then so be it. But really, if I'm honest, people can travel for business and have been able to travel for business for the last 18 months. It's just the sort of rigmarole of what you have to do to get in and out of a country that's probably changed. From a UK point of view, before the pandemic, we were still part of the EU and now we've got Brexit to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it's actually probably more of a challenge, let's say that, for the World Cheese Awards, the sort of Brexit side of things, because we obviously could move UK entries to Spain previously very, very easily. That now comes with an additional layer of paperwork and bureaucracy because we're now treated like a, a rest of world country. So yeah, that has been an additional problem, but it's just a question of adhering to the systems and getting your paperwork right. We'll do our best to be compliant and make sure that all the cheese has a very safe and speedy transit. What kind of entries are you getting this year in terms of the countries? Uh, well, we've only just opened for entries. We're opened on August the 23rd. Already quite a few uh, entries coming in. I think my highlight is India. I always like to see entries from not obvious countries, let's say that. But we, um, as you know, we normally end up with entries from over uh, 40 different countries and we're hoping that um, that will remain the same this year. How do people enter if they're looking to enter? There's good detailed instruction on our website gff.co.uk forward slash wca. Lots of help with what documentation we will be requiring or the Spanish authorities will be requiring. That's not changed to be honest with you. We've always had to complete those things and details on dates and consolidation points. We have 14 consolidation points around the world that cheesemakers can deliver to and there's a timeline in there as well about timings, when we're going to stage the cheeses, when they need to deliver to consolidation points, and also some advice and guidance on quantities that uh, cheesemakers will need to send for the award. So plenty of information there. I still believe in having folk at the end of the phone, so <laughs> people can always call into the office, and we've got a team here who, who will help. And additionally, this year, we have a, a Spanish helpline, so someone, English-Spanish speaker, who, who can help with the inevitable uplift in Spanish entries as we are in Spain. Additionally, that Spanish speaker is obviously helpful for plenty of other countries around the world where Spanish is the first language as well. And when is the deadline for entries? September the 23rd, so we're, we're open for a calendar month. In Bergamo, there was a fantastic event running alongside. Yeah, we're really proud to be hosting the World Cheese Awards at the International Cheese Festival in Oviedo. And that's set to be an incredible event with many, many activities happening over... Well, we, we're judging on, on Wednesday the 3rd and then from the 4th to the 6th, there's a consumer fair with various cheese-related activities. So lots more details. Again, on our website, you can link off to the International Cheese Festival's website. It's set to be a wonderful get-together for the world of cheese, which I think we're all in need of. <laughs> it's a great event that does good things for everyone in cheese, whether you're a maker, an affineur, a wholesaler, a retailer, whatever. It's a good thing. Yeah, this is definitely a great event. And I suppose, do you think that it's even more important in a year like we've just had when 
many cheesemakers have struggled financially for them to be mm. able to promote their products again. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, across the cheese world, and I am obviously much closer to the UK cheese sector, but I know because last year I stayed in touch with our various consolidation points and our contacts, I guess, in the various countries. And I know that that struggle was felt everywhere, certainly amongst the smaller cheesemakers. You saw it here where, I mean, April last year, cheese was being destroyed, milk was being poured down drains that was destined for the cheese room because there was no demand and largely because the food service sector and hospitality sector just got absolutely, totally fell off a cliff uh, overnight. So yes, we've had lots of challenges. I think oddly and bizarrely that perhaps more cheese lovers have discovered different various smaller cheese makers over the last 18 months because people have sort of shopped locally and sourced locally. I know it sounds romantic, but the pandemic has created, I think, more of a community spirit when it comes to food and drink. And that small percentage of people who buy better food and drink has grown slightly, and that feels healthy. So reasons to be positive out of the last 18 months as well. And when we get everyone together in Oviedo at the International Cheese Festival and the World Cheese Awards, we'll um, probably raise a glass of wine and have a piece of cheese and say we're through it, hopefully. The dates for the event are... The cheese is staged on the 2nd of November. We're judging on the 3rd, Wednesday the 3rd of November. And then the 4th, 5th, 6th is the main festival. Tutored tastings around the World Cheese Awards Arena as well. But as I say, look at the International Cheese Festival website because um, that will give you the full picture of what is happening in that first week of November. And if you missed the information on the entry procedure there, you can find the link in the article on dairyreporter.com or you can just head over to the Guild of Fine Food website and find it from there. Hopefully it's an event that lots of people will be able to attend. Now we move to a serious subject in the UK, as it is everywhere, and that's sugar. It's being tackled in many different ways through legislation, reduced portion sizes and reductions in added sugar, And in other ways, but a report that came out recently in the UK from the group Action on Sugar took a look at children's yoghurt in the UK and found most of the children's yoghurts that it analysed were alarmingly high in sugar. To discuss the findings and what can be done is Dr. Kawthar Hashem, the campaign lead at Action on Sugar. The most obvious question, first of all, with this being a podcast that goes beyond just the UK, if you could give me a bit of background on what Action on Sugar is. Sure. Um, So we're a charity. We're part of a bigger group. It's called Consensus Action on Soft Sugar and Health. And we've worked previously on salt reduction in the UK and worldwide. Since 2014, we felt that we can apply similar models, similar successes of salt reduction to sugar reduction. And we started off in the UK and we have members and experts that help us out around the world. But it's very much UK focused since we started because sugar has been quite a complex topic. There are many different issues and challenges with it. Essentially, we're a research group because we do quite a bit of original research on products and we sit as part of uh, Queen Mary University of London. 
So does that differ greatly then between nations in terms of what actions being taken and also what the issues are? Uh, yeah, I suppose there is. One of the biggest or clearest topics that differ around countries in terms of sugar, and we started our work on focusing on drinks because drinks were clearly a very key contributor to sugar intake in the UK, and actually they are worldwide. Uh, and different countries have taken different approaches. Some have soda taxes, uh, as they're called, and these are taxes on the final product, whereas the UK has taken a very unique and different approach, which has been quite successful in the way that we have a levy on companies and it's based on sugar levels and if they were not to reformulate products then they are subject to certain levels of this tax depending on a higher band and a lower band and if they're below the lower band then they escape paying any levy any tax to the government so it's a very different model to having a tax on the final product that the consumer pays and it's not really based on the sugar levels it's whether it's a sugary drink then it will be taxed and so that's one of the big difference around countries when it comes to one of the simplest products which is common all around the world and what approaches to take with it. I assume that with salt and with sugar that this doesn't just go away that it's going to be an ongoing challenge over the next what year several years. Yeah there are different challenges around sugar reduction that are very different to salt reduction and they need kind of different models not strictly just reformulation as that's often our clear flagship piece of work is that actually to get companies to improve their products gradually by tweaking their recipes and reformulating them and so that over you know a 20 year period or a five year period these products are better than what they used to be that's been quite a simpler process when it comes to salt slightly more complex when it comes to sugar but it really depends on what category of product we're talking about and drinks is simpler than for example cake or chocolate and as far as the reach of your group, what kind of influence does it have when it comes to policy and regulations and that kind of thing? So since we historically have collected such rich amount of data and we have access to various researchers, we often respond to government consultations or policy or regulation consultations pointing out where things can be improved based on the data that we have and the evidence that we have. And in some occasions, we've been asked to specifically comment on topics that we've worked on by various policymakers. What are some of the major issues with sugar in different products? The biggest issue when it comes to so many different categories, of course, sugar is added to so many different types of products. And it's quite common to see that there's quite unnecessary and too much sugar added into some popular and common products. And we often see, as well as having high levels and they're unnecessary, there is also a large variation between different products that could be seen as quite similar. And so that's our biggest argument that actually the worst products that do have high levels can be reduced since there are other competitive products that are of lower levels of sugar. So really that's the major issues. Actually, there are unnecessary levels of sugar in products. When it comes to dairy products, we haven't really looked at many dairy products, more focused on, you know, the coffee drinks, the milkshakes. We've looked at that a few times, but more recently we started to look at yogurts a bit more. I can't pinpoint the reason why we haven't looked at yogurts before. It's often seen as a, quite a healthy product. But recently we have started to notice that actually the packaging on children's products specifically is not really, it's very enticing and has many claims. But actually when you do look at 
the fine print of the ingredients list, you can see that actually it does contain added sugar, it does contain added syrups. And it's not necessarily that these products need that because there are other products that could be produced by the same company that don't have these ingredients. Uh, and so the argument is actually there needs to be more improvement in, in the yogurts category in itself and in other dairy categories too. And there's often the impression that plant-based is healthier, but that isn't necessarily the case either when it comes to the yogurts. I suppose it has slightly different issues. The products that did come, a few of the products that came out as quite low in sugar, and I would say suitable for regular consumption by children, do in some instances have higher levels of fat for the you know, the dairy alternative ones. And the reason for that is because they're using an alternative that is rich in saturated fat. So they're using the coconut based milk that would naturally have more uh, saturated fats and therefore will come up higher. But they are still green for sugars or quite low compared to the rest of the product. So that's the main difference. There are very few actually products that are the dairy, you know, alternative ones. Those that are there seem to be more coconut based. As I don't live anywhere near a big city, I can't really be sure of the range of products that are available, but are there many plant-based yogurt alternatives for children? If you're looking for products like we used for categorizing for the specific research piece, we looked at products that would be packaged in smaller portions or smaller pots. They are clearly, you know, they might have a cartoon character or an animation or the font is more attractive and appealing to children, the cut, you know, the color of the packaging. So we had certain criteria that we followed to find products that we thought would be uh, more targeted towards children. If we looked at that small sample of 100 products, there aren't that many specifically marketed or packaged for children within the plant-based yogurts. The findings were quite negative overall. Are there any healthy yogurts for children? And, and I wonder if you could kind of first just go over what the findings were. Sure. So the main finding is actually such a very you know small minority of products, only five out of 100 would be categorized as green. So the green label would say that it contains quite low levels of sugar. And I would argue that this is a product that is suitable for children to have regularly. And everything else was amber. And I don't I believe there was no product that was red. But the criteria of the traffic lights or the color coded labeling is based mainly on adults intake. So you have to take that into account too. Very few of these products actually had the traffic lights on the product packaging itself. And we found one product that could be quite appealing in terms of packaging and how it's portioned to, to children, containing up to five and a half teaspoons of sugar in one serving. That seems quite significantly high and there's opportunity for that company to do more. And we found also about 59% of all these yogurts that we looked at would contain more than a third of a four to six year old's maximum daily intake of sugars, which is 19 grams. And that's only in a single portion of yogurt. So that seems quite excessively high again. And there is opportunity for companies to improve because since there are some greens and there are some low amber ones, there is, I think, opportunity for companies to try and achieve those lower levels as there, you know, some products already exist on the market that do achieve that. There's clearly hope then, I guess. We hear about like sugar tax for pop or soda. Is the sugar tax potentially going to be extended to yogurt? I doubt it because we have had the sugar reduction program in the UK, which looked at the key contributors to sugar intake. And yogurts is one of them. Breakfast cereals is another one. Cakes, biscuits. 
And there's like, I think, about nine or ten categories that the government is trying to speak with the companies that produce the majority of the products on the market to get them to gradually reformulate their products. And what we've noticed is actually breakfast cereals and yogurts have been quite good at achieving this 20% reduction over four or five years and not so much in the, you know, cakes, biscuits and puddings categories. And I think that's the reason why it's unlikely the government will then, after seeing these reductions in those categories, that they will then say, okay, we'll subject them to further measures. What we're arguing here slightly different is actually often these products are packaged in a way that appeals to children, do have claims that distract the parents from actually the fact that these do still contain higher levels of sugar. And actually only the healthier products should have the opportunity to display these kind of claims and boast. And the biggest font used is to point out the amount of calcium and vitamin D in these products. And so it's slightly different. I don't imagine they will be taxed, but what we'd like to see is them for to have different measures to kind of not mislead parents through the packaging. We often find when it comes to yogurt that companies will say that high levels of sugars in the yogurt are due to the lactose from the milk and also from potentially the inclusions, whether that be fruit or other things. Is that a reasonable explanation, do you think? So I think some of it is reasonable. So the lactose that naturally comes from milk, and since obviously yogurt contains a significant amount of milk, that's a type of sugar. It's not the sugar that we need to be concerned with. It's you know, naturally categorized as a type of sugar, but it's not what we often are concerned with. However, if it's coming from fruit, then we need more a better understanding of how that fruit has been processed. So it depends on the level of processing of that fruit that's been added to the product. Is it processed to the extent where it's become a fruit concentrate or it's a puree? And therefore, it then goes into the category that this is categorized very similar to table sugar. And so, you know, end of the day, table sugar is also a refined processed plant. It didn't come out of a lab. It is from a natural source because it's come from sugar beet or sugar cane and so if we want to be very technical all types of the majority of types of sugars have come from natural sources the fact that it's natural does not justify that it should be in products to sweeten products to get kids used to sweet products and so i think the simpler these products are the lower levels of sugar they contain the more natural lactose contained in them is better for children than adding all these different type of sugars that are still not from natural sources yeah, that's a good point. The other thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting was when you mentioned about the fact that often these amounts are for adults when clearly children's intake is lower. Um, mm. So what's the difference between the sugar content of children's yogurt and those aimed at adults? Is it significantly different? So in this occasion, we ha- we didn't look at adult products. And as you can imagine, there's a huge selection of adult products compared to children's ranges. Um, this study specifically looked at the product, those 100 products that would be suitable or seem to be targeting children. However, I would say one of the biggest difference between the adult ranges and the children's ranges is that adult ranges might be sweetened with artificial sweeteners. And as a result, you might find products that are even lower in sugar due to this reason in the adults' products compared to the children. I would still argue in both of these situations, what you would ideally want children to have is either the really low sugar products 
or if they're not available, to opt for the plain version of yogurt and add to it dried, frozen or fresh fruit yourself. And I would encourage parents to do that, also adults to do that, not go necessary for a yogurt that is artificially sweetened. Yeah, that's really good advice, definitely. What are the implications health-wise for overconsumption of these products because as you said these yogurts for kids aren't necessarily a hundred percent of their daily recommended amounts but when combined with all of the other foods and things that they eat within a day it's probably considerably more than that so i think the main concern well there are a few actually the first one that comes to mind is sweetened products are normalizing the expectation in children that yogurt I'm going to have yogurt, I'm going to have sweet yogurt. And it increases their preferences for sweet products. And often these products will be highly palatable compared to the plain versions. And so this could lead by if we're sweetening their snacks and then we're sweetening you know, baby snacks and then we're sweetening the toddler snacks and then we're sweetening these small pots of yogurts. The child's perception of what to expect from food is going to be this highly sweetened preference. And as humans, we generally prefer sweet food. So we don't need this additional reason to like sweet foods, but we do have that. And that seems the easy sell for companies. And the result of that is actually it results in overconsumption of sweet foods in general and a rejection of natural simpler foods that have strong flavours such as vegetables. And we don't want that situation where children are preferring sweeter foods and then reject healthier natural foods. And this overconsumption we know of general sweet foods is resulting in the risk of overweight and obesity. In the UK, we have a third of kids are overweight and obese. And one of the reasons is the high consumption of highly palatable foods that are often sweetened or often really salty and moorish. And the other reason around sweet foods is actually it is the main reason why children's teeth get damaged. So it is linked to tooth decay and it's the main reason why children are admitted to hospital in the UK. And this is absolutely preventable. So either reducing the sugar levels on products that exist or trying to reduce children's intake of sweetened products overall. And as far as the products themselves and the ingredient lists and the traffic light system that's in use in the UK, is it just that parents think yogurt's healthy and therefore they don't even check the ingredient lists? Possibly that's one of the key reasons. However, I would argue not all of them have the traffic lights. Actually, it's mainly the supermarket products. So the, you know, the own label products have the traffic lights, but they sit beside branded products that don't have the traffic lights. And so the comparison is quite challenging between them. But also, you know, they do have the ingredients list, but often those ingredients lists are in the smallest print possible, which is often, you know, parents' attention is distracted by the large print of claims around natural sources of the sugars coming from natural sources, the fact that the product is a source of vitamin D and calcium, it contains no artificial colours or flavourings, it's maybe organic uh, and so forth. And having all these claims is often quite distracting from and often prevents the parent from interrogating the packaging more to spot out actually that sugar is the second ingredient or the third ingredient and it also contains syrups. So I think that's where the problem is, is actually these claims are stopping parents from really realising what's in these products. And as far as you're concerned, what are the best ways to address this? Is it legislation? Is it reformulation? Is it voluntarily putting traffic lights on products that don't have it? What are the different methods that could be used? 
So we've historically asked for a combination of all these things, but increasingly we're focusing more on how the packaging and how the marketing is done. So we've always advocated for reformulation in this products, in these products and continue to do so, particularly those that are you know, in the higher range of sugar levels. But similarly, we would like to see more restrictions. This could be regulated restrictions around the types of claims that products make if they are high in sugar or if they aren't amber in sugar. And so really the only claims that should be allowed are on the products that are low in sugar or green in, in, in sugars. Um, and so they can talk about the vitamin D and calcium and have enticing packaging. And I think that could happen voluntarily. Companies could, you know, you can get one brand that starts to lead that process. But to get really a level playing field where all companies are operating under the same umbrella of regulation, then you'd need government involvement to dictate this. Are you making any headway on, on this? I mean, are, are companies listening to you or is the government listening to you? So I think there might be some interest from government. I mean, we know there's been restrictions on certain products that are high in fat, salt and sugar in terms of promotion. So at checkouts or end of aisles in supermarkets, we know that there is also going to be restrictions coming on online and TV advertising. And we think this could be the next natural step for government to look at is actually the packaging of products or the claims that are on products that are high in fat, salt and sugar. It's really early days because we've only started to focus on, you know, the type of cartoon characters or products that are specifically targeted towards children and really interrogating the levels of sugar or salt in them recently. And But we hope this is going to attract attention of companies as well as government. You mentioned the fact that it's um, early days, but what kind of timescales are you hoping can be followed to improve this because obviously obesity is huge and we don't want it to get worse yes certainly Um, i mean we would like some action to start in a way around cartoon characters some supermarkets have already taken some measures to take some of their cartoon characters off breakfast cereals. There's been another supermarket that's taken off many different types of products. And so I think there's some movement, but really to to get something that's done across the board, you want government to kind of dictate what should be done. I would love it to be as soon as possible, but given the reality of how these things happen, it could take some years. Now that this report has come out, what are the next steps for everyone involved, whether it's governments or companies or your group so in terms of what we'd like to see happening we are likely to repeat this piece of work because actually it's part of a bigger piece of work i don't know if you've heard about it but there's the food foundation annual report called the broken plate and it looks at different areas of the food system and one of them is looking at children's products and as part of that we've been looking at breakfast cereals for a number of years Uh, and then this year we've included yogurts um, that are specifically for children so this piece of work is going to include us looking at yogurts every year so it's something that I hope companies will take notice and try to reformulate or change their packaging uh, to take that into account. And I hope the government takes notice also of this area and does some sort of legislation around what is allowed to be claimed on products that are not necessarily that healthy for children. Well, it's good that this is something that's going to be repeated because hopefully that will improve accountability and also help in the long run with improvements. 
Yeah, I hope so. Uh, and I, I really think for a very long time since starting this sugar work, we've kind of let off the yogurt sector. We have only ever looked at yogurts in, in a very detailed way once before and it wasn't published. And I hope that this piece of work will then really bring more attention to this category going forward. Some great information there and let's hope that there's been some progress made in the next year before the next report comes out. And that's it for another podcast. The time has flown, as always, and I hope you enjoyed it. With the long-term forecast, I'm not sure whether to plan for a walk this weekend before the deluge or make plans for an arc instead. But given my complete ineptitude when it comes to making things, I think it's safer to just ride it out. On next week's podcast, I'm hoping we will have a preview of another upcoming event, and that's Anuga, set to take place from the 9th to the 13th of October in Cologne, or Köln, in Germany. I seriously doubt if the UK government will drop its requirements to take a test before heading home and once I get home, but I guess that's a small price to pay for being able to travel again. Although the price itself isn't exactly small, I think the one to take while in Germany is around £40, and the one I have to take on my return, which is different to the one in England, is about £60. So the tests, I think, are about the same cost as the flight. Oh well, it's the new world we live in, I guess. So while I go and figure all of that out, I hope you have a great week ahead, take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.